Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week, Rebecca chats to Sarah Vibert, the new Permanent Chief Executive of the National Council for Voluntary Organisations. And in this week's Good News Bulletin, we look at English Heritage's response to the bad behaviour of some of its corporate partners. And we look at the success of the Ukraine appeal. But first, um, obviously, we're going to be chatting to a new chief executive later on in the show. But another appointment story caught our eye this week. And this was the news that the former editor of Glamour magazine has been appointed as chief executive of Children with Cancer UK. Absolutely. Joe Elvin, who spent the past four years as the editor of the Mail on Sunday supplement, You, will take up the role next month. And it's actually not that unusual for former journalists to become charity chief executives. Polly Neat, the chief executive of Shelter, she's the former editor of Community Care magazine. And hello, Polly, if you are listening, we hope your ankle is healing well. Ben Summerskill, who's the former chief executive of Stonewall, was also previously the assistant editor of The Observer magazine. Right. And it's pretty common for charity journalists to hop over the fence and move into communications roles in the charity sector as well. So um, my former colleague, uh, Susanna Birkwood, so formerly of this parish, as Andy Ricketts would say, mm-hmm. um, left Third Sector a few years ago to work at Plan International and now is at WWF. And like, I would absolutely feel happy putting money on her running a charity, being chief executive of a charity one day. Like, I have no hesitation at assuming that's going to happen at some point in her career. And have you ever considered becoming a charity chief executive yourself? Um, not, not really. Um, I think partly because uh, thus far in my career, um, and this is starting to feel a bit like one of one of my appraisals now, isn't it? Um, like I've been actively avoiding managing anybody so far. And you know, <laughs> being a charity chief executive feels like it would absolutely involve managing rather a lot of people. But like I can see where there are transferable skills and like similarities between the roles of CEO and an editor, particularly actually, you know, thinking about kind of crafting a narrative, sort of having a kind of narrative coherence in in, in what you're putting out and being both kind of managerial and strategic person, but also like a figurehead for your brand and just generally juggling a lot of plates, which is what you seem to do. Watching you, that seems to be mostly what you do. <laughs> it's juggling plates. Yeah, I mixed those metaphors, didn't I? It's ju- yeah, juggling, but bo- <laughs> no, honestly, I'm sticking with it. I'm sticking with it. I think being an editor looks like juggling plates, frankly. Um, and I'm sure being a charity chief executive also feels like juggling plates. I'm sticking with it. So how about you? Well, having worked adjacent to the sector for a couple of years now, I can absolutely see how people get drawn in and never want to leave. And if I woke up tomorrow and decided that I'd had enough of journalism, I could absolutely see myself wanting to move into a charity and experience working really inside inside the sector full time. Um, would I go straight for chief executive? Not sure about that. Might <laughs> do a cheeky bit of comms to start off. Um but I, I'll never say never. Interestingly, just before we came onto this podcast, I did see a Twitter thread of journalists discussing Joe Elvin's uh, move into the sector. And they were all saying, oh, I've always wanted to work for a charity, but I don't think they could cope with my sweary, brash persona. And <laughs> underneath it, there are a lot of charity professionals, some of the great and good of our own sector, saying, what do you think we are? Just these saintly, very sanitized people who don't know know what a swear word is um i 
you know, can only speak very anecdotally and naming no names, but I've definitely heard the odd F and, and blinder coming from um, some of our contacts in the sector. So uh, I think, you know, I don't think that um, being a sweary person excludes you from working in charity. No, not uh, at all. <laughs> I think I did have that conversation with Polly Neat when she started at Shelter and she was sort of saying, oh, I'm quite sweary. And it turns on, I, it turns out I, I do all right in the charity sector as well as journalism. Um, so yes, I don't think that's a, that's, that's hilarious. You can exist in both worlds. Um, but perhaps at the moment we are ultimately better off being the Umarelli in this scenario. <laughs> So Umarali is this absolutely fantastic term that Alina Martin, our editorial assistant, introduced the team to recently. So Alina has spent a number of years living in Italy and speaks fluent Italian. And she explained that an Umarel is an Italian term referring specifically to men of retirement age who spend their time watching construction sites, especially roadworks, stereotypically with hands clasped behind their back and offering unwanted advice. Uh, now, I've been told I'm not allowed to explain how or why, like what the context was for this term coming up in conversation in the office. Um, yes, absolutely not. That stays between us and the goalposts. But uh, <laughs> I will say that Umarel is currently one of our favourite words on the editorial team at the moment. So oh, so we are currently the Umarelli in this situation. Is that is that what we're saying? I think you could potentially make the argument that we are the Umarelli of the charity sector. Although I would hope that the advice we give our readers is not always unwanted. Earlier this month, Sarah Vibert was appointed as Permanent Chief Executive of the National Council for Voluntary Organisations. Her appointment comes after a difficult couple of years for the charity. Vibert's predecessor, Carl Wilding, stepped down in January 2021 after just 18 months as Chief Executive and 23 years working at the infrastructure body. The following month, in February 2021, a damning internal equality, diversity and inclusion report compiled in 2020 by external consultants uh, surfaced. The report found evidence of bullying and harassment on the basis of race, gender, sexual orientation and disability happening with impunity at all levels of the organisation, leaving members of minority groups there feeling, quote, unsafe at work. The report said all marginalised groups experience overt oppression across all levels of the organisation. The revelations prompted hundreds of charity workers to share their own experiences of bullying, harassment and discrimination in the sector on Twitter under the hashtag, hashtag NotJustNCBO. NCBO has always maintained that Wilding's departure was not related to the report. In the wake of the findings, 10 specific complaints of harassment, victimisation and race discrimination were later investigated and some were upheld. Both Wilding and his deputy Susan Cordingly were allowed to leave the organisation before the investigation into the complaints was conducted. Wilding received a termination payment of almost £28,000 and Cordingly received a payment in lieu of notice of more than £22,000, according to NCVO's most recent accounts. In January of this year, it emerged that Wilding and Cordingly were the subject of a number of those upheld complaints. Sarah Vibert joined the NCBO in January 2020 as Director of Membership and Engagement and became Interim Chief Executive following Wilding's departure in January 2021. When it announced her permanent employment to the role earlier this month, NCBO said that 200 people had applied for the position and that Vibert was the trustee's unanimous choice to take up the role. In a statement, Vibert promised that the NCBO would be, quote, a generous, collaborative leader in the sector and beyond. I spoke to Sarah earlier this week about how she plans to move the organisation forward. So 
so Sarah, thank you very much for joining us. Um, so yeah, you've, you've been, obviously, uh, you've been working for quite a while, um, as, uh, sort of interim chief exec of NCVO, but it's now kind of been permanent official. How long has that been now? Um, oh, has it been about two weeks? <laughs> Is that, I think it's two weeks on Wednesday, something like that. Still quite a fresh and newly minted permanent chief executive. So yeah, so obviously you you kind of you arrived at uh, NCVO back in 2019. Um, I just wanted to ask, what were your first impressions of the organisation when you joined? Uh, back in back in 2020, uh, so I joined in January 2020. Um, ah, okay. 2020. Director of Public Policy and Volunteering. Um, I mean, I guess I'd come from a really small organisation. I'd been running an organisation of kind of four staff and lots of contractors and partners. So coming to an organisation with over 100 staff, it was much bigger. Um, part of the reason I applied to work at NCVA as Director of Public Policy was to have an opportunity to do policy work on a much bigger platform. Um, so I guess that's the first thing that struck me when I arrived at NCVO. Um, and I think what's really interesting, actually, is what the kind of best of big and best of small is. So one of the things I perhaps found frustrating when I arrived was just how slow it is to get things done in a big organisation compared to when you've only got a team of four of you kind of doing everything from writing the blogs to putting them up online to editing them. So yeah, it was, um, yeah, that was probably my, my biggest kind of first impression of NCBO. No, that makes sense. And what made you decide to go for the chief executive job on a permanent basis? So for much of the last year, while I was interim, I actually had no intention of applying on a permanent basis. And in hindsight, I think this really actually helped me and also NCVO because it meant I could be brave in the decisions that I took and the changes that I was leading. Um, and it also meant that the whole year wasn't like a year long interview process. So yeah, I mean, fast forward to December, which is when the job was advertised. Um, and I think it was at that point that I realised that things were perhaps starting to feel a bit different. Um, the staff team felt like it had come back together a bit. Um, we got a great set of partners that we were working with, improved relationships with DCMS. We'd started to build back the income come um, and, and change the way that we work with members. And I think I realised at that point that the next bit on from that initial year of change was probably going to be the most exciting. Um, and so that's what made me decide to apply. So I had the opportunity to lead that. But I guess in terms of the job itself, I mean, I've spent pretty much my whole career working and volunteering in charities. Um, and so the reason I applied back in 2020 uh, to be the director of public policy is this partly the same reason why I applied to be permanent chief exec. Um, you know, a real belief that I have in the role and the power of charities in society and tackling societal challenges. Um, and then the role that NCVO has got to play in um, enabling voluntary organisations and volunteers to thrive. And so going for the permanent role just felt like an opportunity to continue to build on, you know, 100 years of history of the organisation and continuing to adapt and respond to the challenges that voluntary organizations are facing um yeah and I really wanted to build on the work that we'd been doing in 2021 okay and um, yeah obviously the kind of the culture at NCBO has very much been in the spotlight in sort of the last year or so one of the kind of question marks I think people will have is about kind of an internal candidate obviously Carl was also kind of the internal candidate uh, your predecessor Carl Wilding was also the internal candidate you are effectively an internal candidate. And now I don't expect you to kind of, you know, account for the decisions of, of the committee that hired you. I don't think that's fair. But what is it you think you're bringing to the role? Because there will be people within the sector who will be going, oh, OK, they've, they've gone for an internal person again. What's going on there? Yeah, well, I hope that I... Um 
have demonstrated and will continue to demonstrate that I can represent a good balance of change and continuity um, and can kind of bring both of those elements to benefit NCVO in the voluntary sector. So, I mean, in terms of continuity, I've spent the last year, I guess two years, in fact, building the trust and the respect of um, our staff team, our trustees, our members, the government, the wider sector. Um, And it has been a huge period of change for NCVO and for the voluntary sector. So, I hope that what I can do is build on the foundations of the last few years and, and bring a degree of stability. Um, but that's definitely not to say that I won't continue to mix things up. I did only join NCVO in 2020, so it does make me a relative newcomer to the infrastructure world. So yeah, in terms of me and what I can bring, um, first and foremost, I hope I bring the authenticity that comes with having led and worked in and volunteered in voluntary organisations um, of all sorts of different shapes and sizes through my career. So 15 years working in the voluntary sector before NCVO. Um, And I think, you know, when I'm making decisions as um, chief exec, it's often through the lens of what would I have thought about when I was this, when I was leading a small charity? Or would this have worked for me when I was director of a larger charity? So I guess, you know, I can bring that kind of real experience of, of being in the sector. You know, I'm excited about the legitimacy that will come with having gone through a recruitment process. So I can be much bolder and, and longer term now. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of the last years necessarily been quite internally focused. Um, so I'm quite excited about how we can develop the work for the sector, having stabilised things a bit internally. I bring a deep understanding of membership organisations. Um, so prior to NCVO, um, I ran a small membership organisation for brain and spine charities, the Neurological Alliance. Um, And I was also a trustee of the health charity coalition, National Voices. And of course, working with 17,000 members presents a slightly different challenge to those smaller coalitions. But I think a lot of the principles are kind of the same, Rebecca, in terms of the tensions that I'm managing, for example, between the needs of smaller and larger members, national and local organisations. Yeah, I guess the other thing I just want to kind of talk about a bit is, because I talked about out of a lot of this at my interviews for the job and it's quite funny saying all of this again it's slightly kind of flashbacks to being at the interview um, <laughs> yeah. but yeah I think one of the things I can bring is um, a particular leadership style and I think organizations need different leaders for different times in their development um, and what I've demonstrated over the last year I think is a leadership style that's grounded in relationships and compassion and you know I really want to ensure that NCV is a generous leader as the largest membership body but I balance that kind of I guess kind of relational compassionate approach with like a real ambition for the voluntary sector and what I know we can achieve collectively Um, and although my kind of natural style is to work collaboratively I'm actually really a competitive person too and I think the trick is to channel that in the right way so it's serving the sector collectively and not just serving one organisation. I completely hear what you're saying about wanting to move past the internal focus that has, has understandably sort of dominated a lot of your thinking in the past year and to that more external focus. But just to kind of, you know, as we've said, there have been massive cultural issues uh, at the NCBO in the past. So how do you plan to move the organisation on from that, both in terms of sort of building up that staff trust internally um, and sort of, you know, moving it on as as this leader in the sector that, you know, the organisation has always been positioned as? 
Yeah, I mean, I I don't see cultural changes having an endpoint. Um, that's something that our um, brilliant head of people and culture has really taught me. Yes, the organisation culturally is very different now from a year ago um, and from two years ago. But I think we'll continue we'll continue to build on this and adapt. And we've done a lot of kind of I guess big set piece things to change our culture. So we've updated our policies. We've done the investigations, which was a really important piece of work. Set up an EDI committee. Reached structured the organisation. And these have obviously been really significant things we've done. But actually, the most important thing is the day to day. So how I and my colleagues interact with each other, um, how we're making decisions, who's making decisions, um, how I and others listen to and empower other people. And I think that's the that's where the change is really happening and of course that takes a really long time um and actually i guess it was the anniversary of being um the interim chief exec back in um january and obviously the ceo recruitment process for the permanent role and both of those were quite a good point to kind of look back and go okay how much has actually changed um because it has been quite frustratingly slow at times and i think yeah i don't want to go too far in saying everything's changed because um i'm not complacent and there are definitely still colleagues who are in different places but things have started to feel different um and none of the change has been this kind of linear progression so we've found that there's been kind of various points along the way which have um in some way step set us back a few steps um and then we've been able to regroup and then move even further forward so you don't just kind of leave one culture behind and then magically move to another really great culture there's going to be various stages in between um and you need to address kind of new issues that come up. And I think one of the things that I'm really trying to do is get a balance between keeping people and colleagues really focused on NCVA's cause and mission, but also doing that in a way that's really respectful um, and acknowledging um, the experiences of the past. Um, yeah. And you asked specifically about the wider sector. So I think, you know, the way that the organisation operates operates internally will directly impact on the way that um, those externally are experiencing the organisation. Um, so it's really important that our whole staff team is really living our values um, in our interactions with our members, with our partners. And I, I mean, I think of all of our um, organisational values, probably the most important value has been openness and so that authenticity making sure that we are not defensive um you know offering really genuine apologies over the last year and being really open in the way that we've tried to share our learning i hope has been all important things in kind of rebuilding relationships and trust with our members with the sector and i think one of the things that i've seen is a lot of goodwill towards ncvo but i really do not take that goodwill for granted um and so in the coming year i want to really drive inclusion through our external facing work and particularly look at our role um in supporting the parts of the sector that don't have strong infrastructure hmm. no that makes sense and you know just looking back to that that internal report that was written in 2020, came out at the beginning of 2021, um, that, that we published excerpts from, you know, the overwhelming thing that the line that stood out to me was this line about people from all minoritized backgrounds and women experience overt and covert oppression at every level of the organization. And I can't imagine working in an organization where that isn't sort of part of the the feeling day to day where you're not aware of that. So as somebody that's kind of been part of the workforce, you know, you're talking about this cultural change. Are you aware of the culture being different day to day? Do you think, do you think the day to day experience of working in this organization is different? I really hope so. I mean, it's, 
it's quite hard to stand there as chief exec and say, yeah, everything's changed because actually it needs to have changed for every single member of staff. Um, and we've done a lot of work actually to make sure that we really are taking the temperature of the organisation and that the leadership team and the board have a really clear line of clear line of sight to the culture of the organisation. One of the things that has been important to me is putting in place lots of different avenues so colleagues can raise concerns at different levels of formality and you know one of the things I do is I run a Q&A with staff every few weeks and it's so useful to know what are people currently worrying about what are they concerned about and it's changed a lot over the year in terms of the areas of work that people are worrying about Um, and it gives me a chance as chief executive to be really open in my responses um, to talk to people about things that I'm thinking about and then to act on the things that are raised Um, and so kind of really trying to live that learning culture Um, and I mean just to give you one or two examples of a couple of things that are happening at NCVO at the moment that I think represent a different culture so at the moment we've got a group of colleagues who over the last few weeks have led work for NCVO to sign up to the hashtag my name is campaign as part of race equality week Um, and we've got another group who've been doing work to set up a new staff network to add to the group of staff networks we've already got so this will be a staff network specifically for LGBTQ plus people Um, and then there's another group that are putting together this staff cookbook to really celebrate the individuality of um, members of the team and so we can talk about um, sort of our shared love for different meals and food and our backgrounds and so yeah really trying to kind of I guess celebrate difference embrace difference at NCVO. Yeah and I mean that must be really challenging for you trying to work out like how do I demonstrate how do I prove that this is different how do I make sure people feel it how how am I measuring myself and holding myself accountable that must be a real challenge. Yeah absolutely and I think it's one of the things that I've really tried from day one as interim to to really prioritize and in lots of different ways so one of the things we do is at the beginning of each staff meeting we do a check-in and we ask how people are feeling on a number of different scales and all those scores have slowly slowly improved over the whole year around well-being around how they're feeling about work Um, we're doing staff surveys Um, I try to be a very visible chief exec and be in staff meetings with different teams and talking to different colleagues of course we're slowly going back to the office we've got an in-person away day next week very excited about that some colleagues will be online in parallel as well and you know looking at how we really embrace hybrid so yes it's it's hard um but it's really important and of course NCVA is only 90 staff you know it's 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 small enough um for me to know everybody by name and know everybody really well and that's relationships are something that I've really prioritised in kind of all aspects of of work Um, but getting to know the staff team as people is is really important to me. What do you see as being the biggest challenge in the role as Chief Exec of NCVO? Wow so I think I mean I think for NCVO specifically probably the biggest challenge that we have and that I have as Chief Exec is balancing Um, the tensions that are inherent in our work. So we need to serve um, both small and large charities. So if you take, for example, Cancer Research UK, one of our largest members, and say my son's Beavers Group, um, they couldn't be more different in terms of um, the way they operate and the needs that they have as organisations. And so 
trying to find that common ground across small and large national local organizations that are more conservative or more radical in their outlook um, and I think you know for our policy work it means trying to take a t- position on something without just saying something that's really really bland um, and that can be quite challenging but I, I really love that aspect of our work I mean we're at the heart of this complex web of relationships and kind of have this really unique role in the ecosystem I mean, beyond NCVA specifically, there are so many challenges in society right now. Um, And of course, the voluntary sector and volunteers are such an important part of the solution and creating a different future. Um, But that's that's not going to be easy given the economic climate that we've got, which means that we've got increasing demand for charities at a time when income generations is more challenging, reserves are depleted, costs are rising. um, And also as organisations we're all trying to adapt to different ways of working and recruitment's becoming more difficult and of course influencing government is not easy so I think you know being chief executive NCVO with that challenging context for the voluntary sector while also as a sector having to adapt as well so you know adapting uh, meaning that we've got meaningful change in terms of um, EDI and becoming more representative of the communities we serve um, and also playing our part in contributing to net zero so yeah quite a lot of challenges but lots of opportunities too as well I hope Rebecca yes yeah no a lot of that to, to come back to this this meaningful change on EDI I was just wondering like what does that look like for you do you think so I think the sector's all at different places. There are some organisations that are doing absolutely brilliant leading work here. And I think there are still organisations that are trying to work out um, what's the best place to start. Um, and I mean, obviously, NCVO has been through this journey ourselves. And there's there's lots of different layers to that. Um, I think there's a really important governance angle to this and I think that lots of boards across the sector are doing really important work here to look at to look at what um, diversity and inclusion means at a governance level I think you know obviously we want to see a sector I mean I, I said it in my answer before that is more representative of the community that we serve um, but also but but you can't just bring about diversity with also without also looking at inclusion. So a lot of that is about, you know, really, I guess, quite challenging conversations inside organisations about where does power sit and how do you how do you change that balance of power within an organisation? Where are decisions made? So while I think there are some quite tangible things around things like pay gaps and the diversity of leadership and trustees across the voluntary sector, I think there's also a lot of really intangible stuff about how does it feel to work in the voluntary sector and and does everyone feel included and um, and part of the organisations and the, and the sector that we work in? Yeah, no, that makes sense. And obviously, those challenging conversations are something that you have been having at NCVO over the last couple of years quite intently. Yes, absolutely. We have. We have. And I think, I mean... I think at the time it was very, very challenging for the EDI report to be um, shared with the sector at the beginning of last year. But one of the reflections that I've had over the last year, and I've, I've talked about this in other forums, is that it has um, it has enhanced and I guess developed some of the conversations in the sector around diversity inclusion it's meant we've been very publicly able to talk about the learning that we've got the the learning that we've been through at NCVO um, and um, how other organizations can um, build on that in their in their organizations. Before we move on to other things what are you most looking forward to in the role? So the 
best bit of the role for me, my favourite part of the job is is talking to members. So talking to people who volunteer in and run organisations. Every month we do um, an introduction for new members to NCVO. And that's probably my favourite meeting I go to each month because um, I always learn something new. Um, and I think it's just a really great example of how we're bringing members together and how we're relating differently to our members at NCVO. Um, I'm really excited about getting the vision for volunteering out into the world and working with people across our sector and other sectors to bring this to fruition. Um, it's, ambi- it's ambitious, it's inspiring, and it's a real collaborative endeavour. And I think it's going to need all organisations and sectors to contribute to delivering it. Um, I'm really excited about building on the legacy of the Small Charities Coalition, um, working with the Foundation for Social Improvement and the Small Charities Advisory Group. Um, and I'm also looking forward to continuing to build a relationship with government, um, working with others like Akiva. My background's all in policy. Um, I'm really passionate about this part of NCVO. It's what first brought me to NCVO as Director of Public Policy. Um, And I think, you know, some of the most satisfying things are hard won. And we've had some small successes here. We've got quite a long way to go. We've got a strong relationship with DCMS colleagues now. And there is a genuine commitment, I think, to work together for the benefit of the sector. So yeah, lots to build on there. In terms of the kind of the, the wider sector, we sort of talked a bit about kind of how you feel like you're going to kind of rebuild the sector's trust in NCVO. But yeah, what are your kind of priorities going forward for how you relate to the rest of the sector? So um, I guess I've got three kind of big priorities for the year ahead. Um, so the first one very much builds on a lot of the stuff I've talked about in terms of culture change and how it feels to work with NCVO. So really around developing a more personalised, more accessible, more collaborative NCVO, um, really focusing on those relationships. So relationships between members, relationships between NCVO and members and relationships between NCVO and the others in the sector that share our vision. Um, for civil society so lots of so lots of things we'll be doing for example we'll be creating new networks to bring our members together we'll be testing new approaches to how we involve our members in our policy work um, changing the way that we gather insight about members so we're continually refining our offer and understanding what it is that members need and then we're also going to be undertaking work to look at who's not in our membership so that links back to the inclusion piece that I just spoke about so really aware that there are parts of the sector that don't have strong infrastructure. And I really want to look at the role NCVO can play here. Um, I think the second um, area is around how we adapt our offer, our support for members in response to the external environment, how we work alongside members and partners to respond to challenges in the external environment. So net zero, the funding environment, supporting um, mental health and wellbeing in the sector, flexible work, working. Um, so I think a lot of this is about ensuring we've got a really comprehensive um, member offer so we can speak to the needs of small and large charities. So um, as you'll know, we are shortly announcing that we're going to be partnering with the Foundation for Social Improvement to build on the legacy of the Small Charities Coalition. Um, so I've run and worked in small charities for a lot of my career um, and was really sad to hear that the Small Charities Coalition were closing um, and so really pleased that we're going to find a way to not just maintain their services, so the transfer of the helpline for small charities, but also work with partners across the sector um, to build on these. Um, So I think what's really important is to have a distinct and comprehensive service for the smaller part of the sector um, and also maintain that small charity voice for decision makers. So I'm really hoping we can do this with the Foundation for Social Improvement. We'll be setting up a small charities advisory group with people from across the sector um, and 
also working with other partners across infrastructure. But for the larger charities, we've got a completely different role. Um, Yes, they come on our training, they come to our seminars, but talking to the CEOs from the larger charities, the most important role we play is the platform that we provide in advocating for the sector. And so being effective in this role is all around how we build strong relationships with government. Um, So that's another really important priority for me, how we kind of reset that relationship through it quite targeted and deliberate relationship building work some of that's with the civil society group um, and looking at how we can help with government priorities and obviously that's a longer term piece of work than just the next few months but and looking ahead to the next election even but um, really important too and then I guess the third big priority because NCVA has got this dual role supporting the voluntary sector but also championing volunteering um, so one of my priorities is around breaking down barriers for vol- to volunteering Um, So we'll be launching an ambitious 10-year vision for volunteering with um, lots of different partners. Um, We'll be launching that in May. Um, And I've just seen the first cut of that. And it's really inspiring, ambitious. I think it's going to push all of us to think really differently about volunteering. But the launch is just the start of the hard work. So NCVA will also have a really important role to play in delivering that. Uh, Brilliant. And just to come back to what you're saying about small charities, because I think that's really interesting. I remember having a conversation we are going about back about four or five years that somebody who was sort of related to the small charities coalition sort of said, actually, if NCVO were supporting small charities the way they should be, and if they were representing the whole sector, we wouldn't need the small charities coalition. Um, and kind of obviously the small charities coalition now has, has sadly had to close and that is a huge loss. Um, so yeah, how is there a plan within NCVO about how you're going to reach out to small charities and make it clear that that kind of, you know, that that support is there and that you can offer it to them? Absolutely. I sometimes feel like that might be our best kept secret. Um, 92% of our members have an income of under a million pounds, which is um, how the Small Charities Coalition defines small. Um, and two thirds have an income of under under £30,000, which means they join NCVA for free. Um, and a lot of our support offer is very targeted at that small end of the market. So if you look at the information we have available online, that is all designed with small charities in, in mind. Um, so I'm really excited about the opportunity to work with the Foundation for Social Improvement, who've got a really strong track record supporting small charities to, I guess, really develop this offer. Um, I think one of the really important things, and this has come out a lot in the conversations with the Small Charities Coalition trustees, as we've been talking about the handover of some of this work, is retaining a small charity voice um, for decision makers. And and that's challenging because NCVO needs to support and um be the voice of all charities and all voluntary organisations. Um, so that's where the Small Charities Advisory Group is going to come in that we're setting up. Um, and I'm really hopeful um, we're going to recruit openly to that group and recruit a, hopefully a really strong chair who can help add another layer of that voice um, for small charities in the influencing work that we do in the sector. So yeah, aware there's a lot of work to do there and particularly conscious that we need to really retain that uh, retain that voice and ensure that there's a very very distinct offer um, and I guess brand almost um, that say small um, within what we're doing in this area. Okay, brilliant. And yeah, obviously over the last couple of years, sort of looking at the wider sector, we've seen these kind of unprecedented levels of collaboration. I feel like we've said that so many times, we've pointed it out so many times, it just has been the overwhelming kind of lesson and message of the pandemic. How do you plan to maintain and build on that going forward? 
So collaboration is absolutely at the heart of my vision for NCVO and it's at the centre of our organisational strategy. Um, So this is how we're going to do things at NCVO. And of course, the civil society group is a really big part of this work, um, working with lots of others who share our vision for people and communities. Um, And I think the driving force behind setting up the civil society group was that so much good had come out of the collaboration during the pandemic. And we really wanted to um, find a way to make sure we really sustained it beyond the immediate emergency. Um, And I think what's been really energising over the last year has to see how partnership has really started to develop and mature I think it's one thing to get the leaders of organizations to come together in an emergency but you only get true collaboration when it's kind of happening at all levels across organizations Um, and I think we're seeing that now in the civil society group say for example the policy work that we did on leveling up together um, but also through things like the work that we're doing to collaborate with Foundation for Social Improvement, which will be about shared service delivery. Um, I've mentioned the vision for volunteering work, which is going to be a collaboration, not just across civil society, but across all sectors. And yeah, I mean, so the civil society group, as you know, has formalised itself. Um, We've got a number of priorities that we're working on together right now, um, ranging from the relationship with government to work that Cathy Evans at Children England is um, convening on procurement and commissioning. We've got work on funding and finance that the Chartered Institute for Fundraising and Charity Finance Group are coordinating. Um, And as you know, we've been really focused on regulation and what the Civil Society Collaboration has enabled NCVO and Akivo to do is have a united leading voice in these debates, but to coordinate with other partners who are taking slightly different stances to us. And beyond the sort of shared projects and shared priorities, um, like don't underestimate just what an incredible forum this has been just for sharing intelligence and insight so there's 40 50 60 organizations that are coming together at least once a month um, to do this and I think I really believe that the infrastructure bodies should be thinking of ourselves as this shared movement with this shared vision um, which does mean at times putting the cause above the brand and um, so we're really truly working for the good of the sector um, and I'm really aware of NCVO's role in this because I think you know it's the largest of the voluntary sector infrastructure bodies. I think we've got a real responsibility um, to be that generous leader um, and also to recognise when we're best placed playing this coordinating or enabling role, but also to think about when it's right for us to step up and lead from the front. And I think, you know, as I said, collaboration is absolutely woven through my vision and our strategy. Brilliant. Uh, Well, Sarah, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Rebecca. Each week, as ever, we bring you our Good News Bulletin, a positive or a quirky news story that we've spotted in the charity sector. So first up, English Heritage has said it is reviewing its partnership with P&O Ferries in light of the company's decision to sack 800 staff without notice. Uh, So this was in the news uh, last week. Uh, The company's been heavily criticised since it emerged that several hundred employees were made redundant with immediate effect via a pre-recorded Zoom call. One union reported that security guards were hired and sent to remove staff from P&O Ferries vessels. A government minister described the company's actions as disgraceful. The Labour Party called it a despicable attack on workers' rights. So they have a partnership with English Heritage, which has been running since 2018, and that enabled uh, English Heritage members to get 5% discounts on P&O travel services. But the charity told Third Sector that it had decided to put the relationship on hold. The charity has removed these offers from its website, along with all references to P&O ferries. 
An English Heritage spokesperson said, given the recent developments, we are pausing and reviewing this partnership. So granted, this isn't like a massively positive story. Um, but from a charity point of view, I thought what was really sort of positive and inspiring about it was that it is a charity using its partnership to both hold a company to account and to stand up and say, this isn't right. We don't agree with it. This isn't good behavior. And to use their voice in that space, which I think is really, is really great. Absolutely. Especially because I think large corporate organizations will often tout the relationships that they have with charities in a bid to show that they are ethical and, um, you know, morally minded companies. A lot of the time they'll say, but we support these great organizations. You know, you'll have, say, BP um, saying, but we give so much to the British Museum. How could and what we'd be doing, you know, be bad for the environment. I mean, that's a paraphrase for sure. Yeah, yeah. But you, you, you get my drift. And yeah. I think English Heritage's decision in this instance to say, actually, we are going to uh, put this relationship on hold until you've sorted this out is a perfect example of an organisation saying, you can't just use us as your your piece of good news. Um, we won't have it because we don't agree with those choices that you are making as an organisation. So props to English Heritage. Yeah, it's an interesting sort of rebalancing of the power there in that partnership and saying, actually, this goes both ways. Um, so yeah. Uh, and what have you got for us, Emily? Of course, this is the news that has been dominating headlines throughout March. But I would like to give an enormous shout out to the Disasters Emergency Committee um, for their incredible fundraising effort as the war in Ukraine intensifies. So a big shout out there to the DEC and to every person who donated to their emergency fundraiser over the course of March. Uh, the DEC's Ukraine humanitarian appeal raised £200 million just two weeks after it was launched. Um, and that's the equivalent of £3 for every person in the UK. The staggering total raised for the charity, I think, reflects the enormously generous response of the UK public towards people who are being affected by that conflict in Ukraine, which is continuing to force people to flee their homes and cross the border into neighbouring countries. According to the DEC, this is the biggest response it has seen to a disaster since the Boxing Day tsunami in 2004. So, a huge thank you to everyone who has given. Yeah, this the response has obviously been incredible. And I think even more incredible, um, so you compared it to the Boxing Day tsunami in 2004. I think historically with DEC campaigns, uh, I think I'm right in saying what they tended to see was they raise more money through for appeals for natural disasters than they do for conflict. I think there's, there's a, obviously we have to say the mantra of the British public is very, very generous, but I think you know, the British public historically is less generous when it comes to man-made conflict rather than sort of disasters. Um, so I think that's that's what makes this this story even more sort of exceptional and and brilliant. The response to it has been fantastic. So many thanks to everybody who has donated, and also a great big shout out to all of the charities who are currently working in all kinds of capacities across this conflict, whether it is delivering emergency humanitarian aid or facilitating a growing refugee crisis. You are all doing incredible work and it is, you know, the sector at its best. Absolutely. We'll be back with another episode soon, so make sure you subscribe to this, The Third Sector Podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. I'm Rebecca Cooney. Thank you to our guest, Sarah Vibert, and of course, our producer, Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next week.